Well, good morning. We have a good crowd here this morning, and we want to thank you for your attendance and any visitors that we have. We want to thank you for being here with us. Uh, let us get a chance to, to meet you. You are our guests, and we are thrilled to have you here with us this morning. I also want to say, uh, Herb, I had never heard that song before that you introduced earlier. I loved that. That was beautiful, and so thank you for introducing that to us. Um, so we've been going through the book of Acts. We've been showing some of the ways that Acts connects uh, to the Gospel of Luke, and we've been showing some of the ways that the book of Acts emphasizes uh, overcoming as Christians, because whatever we do, Satan is going to try to throw roadblocks and obstacles in our way. And one of the incredible aspects of the way that the book of Acts is told is that like chapter after chapter after chapter, you're introduced to new obstacles. And as we've been seeing these obstacles uh, facing the church, what you see is the church not only finds ways to overcome them, but then the church expands out from that and continues to grow and their numbers increase greatly. And you see the Holy Spirit of God is active and you see that uh, Christians are growing more faithful. You see that there's persecution and yet they accept it joyfully and they scatter and they take the word of God with them. And no matter what Satan tries to throw at the church, he cannot stop it because God is on the side of the church and the church grows and the church flourishes and new and incredible things keep happening. One one of the incredible things that has just happened, starting back in Acts chapter 10, was Peter preached the gospel to an uncircumcised Roman centurion named Cornelius. And he received the Holy Spirit and he was baptized and he became part of the Christian movement. And that happened without circumcision. That happened without obedience to, to Torah, to the law of Moses. And so something entirely and completely took uh, unexpected took place before Peter and and he proved obedience to it but that event right there it's going to do two things one it's going to take some like Paul to go out and to now make the Gentiles a primary mission field. And he's going to teach the gospel. He's going to teach faith in Jesus. He's going to teach the grace of God and salvation without teaching circumcision. And on the other hand, what it's going to do is it's going to take some and say, wait a minute here. Are we doing the right thing? Um, I, I mean, if you've read your Bible and by this, at this time, this is important to remember, their Bible did not include books like Galatians and Romans. Uh, their Bible was Genesis through Malachi. And if you read that, circumcision is kind of a big deal. And even if you are familiar with the teachings of Jesus, I mean, read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which haven't been written yet, by the way, but also just, just read those. And what you'll find out is Jesus never really even explicitly says, don't obey circumcision or you don't have to circumcise. Like he didn't say anything like that. In fact, Jesus was circumcised. And so you're thinking, well, wait a minute here. Um, perhaps we're skipping something kind of important. Uh, always, in order to join the covenant family of God, circumcision has been a part of that. Even with Abraham, by the way, which was before the law of Moses was given. He was, he was circumcised. And so now we're saying that you could just disregard like what the Bible says? And so some people are going to look at Paul and Peter and say, wait a minute, guys, you're not really following the example of Jesus. You're not listening to Moses and the scriptures. You are trying to expand the kingdom of God, but you're leaving behind fundamental truth. So some people are going to have a problem with that. So what you're going to have happen now, surprise, surprise, a new conflict arises, a new controversy, a new obstacle. And the church has to come together to try to face it. And what I love about Acts 15, which is where our lesson is going to be today, is that the church does come together and they take these matters seriously. 
and they talk about their experiences and they talk about scripture and they talk about ways that they can forge unity through these obstacles. And then the story ends with the church being encouraged, being joyful, uh, with unity being reached and Paul going out on another missionary journey uh, in order to continue teaching the word of God to Gentiles. So it's like so often what happens uh, when conflict arises is one group, they dig in their heels, and the other group digs in their heels, and they don't even discuss much with each other. They just assume the worst of the other person. There's a split that takes place, and that's the end of the story, and all of a sudden, the unity of Christ has been made a mockery. What happens in Acts 15 is they take truth very, very seriously, but they also take unity very, very seriously, and they also take the expansion of the kingdom of God very, very seriously. And those three goals of the church, truth, Unity and the expansion of the kingdom are sometimes very hard to figure out the proper balance and how to mingle them all together. But I think Acts 15 is a really beautiful picture of how the early church did that. Now, that doesn't mean Acts 15 is going to solve all future problems in the church, even on this issue. Uh, more things will arise and more obstacles will come and we'll face them when we get there. But Acts 15 is actually a really encouraging chapter, I think. So as we get to it, here's the problem. Peter taught Cornelius uh, the gospel. Cornelius was baptized. He was not circumcised or obedient to the law of Moses to do so. Paul then goes out and he preaches the gospel to Gentiles in chapter 13 and 14. He goes on this first missionary journey and he teaches them and they receive baptism. They become part of the covenant family of God and they are not circumcised. And there are some who have been faithful Pharisees throughout their lives who have become believers. And that's actually really important. If you look at Acts chapter 15, look at Acts chapter 15 and um, in Acts chapter 15 and verse 5, Notice what it says. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying, wait a minute, they are Pharisees and yet they've come to believe. Did you know, and this is actually really important for understanding a lot of the New Testament, and it's something sometimes that I don't know if we realize or think about all that much, but uh, you did not stop being a Jew or even a Pharisee when you became a Christian in the early church. Uh, you were still very much a Jew, and you were still, even if you were a Pharisee, you were still a Pharisee. Uh, you didn't stop all of those things and say, okay, I'm stopping this religion, and I'm starting a new religion. That wasn't really the way that they thought about it. That's often the way we think about it, um, but that's not really the way they thought about it. They thought about it as, I am a faithful Jew, and now my Messiah has come. And so now I'm a Jew who believes in the Messiah, and that changes everything. Like, for example, the word Christianity is not used in the New Testament. Uh, they didn't think, all right, I'm leaving Judaism, entering Christianity. They often still consider themselves Jews, but they are Jews who have now reached the telos or the goal or the, 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 the final uh, fruition of what the law had been pointing them to, and their Messiah has come. And what was promised to Abraham was that a blessing would come to all the nations. And so now even Gentiles are welcome into this family of God. And now even Gentiles are, are, are able to be fellow heirs with us, and we can join together in one family, and it's for the whole world. But that doesn't mean that they, like, that they said, okay, Judaism, I'm no longer, like that was a part of who they were. And now they were Jews who believed in the Messiah. And so certain aspects of their Judaism changed because of that. And that's what we're going to be talking about. And that's what they had to figure out. I mean, remember Acts 10, 
When Peter has a vision that tells him to go speak to Cornelius and teach him the gospel, he has to have that vision three times. And what the vision is, is it's of unclean foods coming down. And Peter's like, wait a minute. I've never eaten food like that in my life. Why has he never eaten food like that? He became a Christian. Didn't he just stop following all that stuff from the Judaism? No, he didn't. He, he, was still, he was still eating according to the food laws. And a lot of people were. In fact, in Acts chapter 20, James, the brother of Jesus and the leader of the church in Jerusalem, we find out he's still, uh, along with many of the Christians there, they're still keeping the law. And they're quite concerned that Paul is telling people not to. And so like, there are so many uh, questions that have to be answered because they're still Jews, but they believe the Messiah has come. So what does that mean? What does that mean about food laws? Well, that's something they're going to discuss. That's something they have to figure out. In fact, Jesus said something really remarkable that does relate to food laws. Jesus says, it's not what goes into a man that defiles him, but what comes out of him. And so, like, what really indicates where your heart is with God isn't the food you eat. It is uh, the way that you speak, the way that you treat others, the things that you do. What comes out of your heart matters more. And so, what does that mean about the food laws? Well, that. So that's an interesting question. Mark, the gospel writer, ends up putting a little note in the gospel that says, thus he declared all foods clean. And you find something out. Jesus didn't go around saying, food laws don't matter anymore, so break them. That's not what Jesus said. But what Jesus did was he cleansed foods that had once been considered unclean. Now they're clean. And so how did that, did, did, does that mean you break the law of Moses to eat whatever you want now? No, the law of Moses said, don't eat the unclean foods. But what if now all foods are clean because the Messiah has come? What does that mean? That changes things. Uh, or, or considering Gentiles. Uh, what if at one point you considered certain people to be unclean, whether because, of, because they were Gentiles or because of uh, other considerations, some of the purity regulations. But what if Jesus now cleanses all people? Remember what happens with Jesus. Jesus sees a leper and touches that leper. And what happens? Does Jesus become unclean? No. The cleanliness. Ordinarily, you were not supposed to touch a leper. He had to go stand off by himself. Why? Because he was unclean. And he, you would get unclean if you touched him. But what happens with Jesus? The Messiah comes. He touches the leper. And now the leper leaves clean. And so does Jesus. He like transformed the direction that the contagion would go. And instead of Jesus becoming unclean, the leper becomes clean. And Jesus did that with dead bodies. Remember, you weren't supposed to touch a dead body. You'd become unclean. But guess what Jesus did? He grabbed a dead little girl's hand by, or, uh, girl by the hand and he said uh, uh, to arise. And she did. And all of a sudden, she had life. And she walked away clean. And Jesus wasn't unclean there. Jesus did this time and time again. There was a woman with a flow of blood who that was supposed to render her unclean. And yet she touched the fringe of Jesus's garment. And ordinarily what would happen is he would then become unclean because of that. But what happened instead? She walked away clean. So what happens when the cleanliness, like Jesus doesn't go around saying, all right, go ahead and touch everyone who's unclean. Be unclean. It's fine. Forget what Moses said. Instead, what Jesus does is he takes the unclean and he makes them clean. He takes unclean food and he makes them clean. And so what you're seeing here is not just a disregarding of the law of Moses, but rather a new way of seeing people and a new way of seeing purity and a new way of seeing cleanliness that is far more universal, which is really important for a universal mission. But is that just an obvious thing to see by reading the law of Moses, especially if that's your Bible at this point? 
Not quite. That's some stuff that has to be experienced and taught. And so a problem arises when Paul goes out and starts teaching this type of message. You have some who say, unless you were circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. You have some who say, it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. Look, if you're going to go and preach the gospel to Gentiles, fine, do it. Good luck. We hope it works out well. We hope more people come to believe in Jesus. But don't just disregard Moses. Still circumcise them. Still teach them the law of Moses. I mean, that's, that's what our Bible says, right? And remember, you can't just flip to uh, Galatians and, and the, their Bible doesn't include that yet. And so this isn't a dumb position that they're taking is, is the point that I want you to see. Sometimes it's so foreign to us. We would never, like any of us, think in a million years, all right, I'm going to go teach the gospel to someone. i got to find out if they're circumcised. That would be a really weird thing to bring up. It does not, like, it doesn't jive with us at all. Uh, it, sometimes when you're reading ancient literature, there's going to be things that are just so culturally irrelevant to us, but that matter so much to them. And it's not because they're ridiculous people. It's because they lived in a different culture and some things really, really mattered. And you can totally understand the point these Pharisees are making. They are not saying don't believe in Jesus. They do believe in Jesus. They are Pharisees who believed. They think he's the Messiah. They believe in the resurrection. And they think we should teach people the gospel. But, I mean, they've read the law of Moses. And they're, they, I mean, it seems as though they should still honor Moses. I mean, in some ways they still honor the law of Moses. Like with some of their sexual laws and things like that. They still teach what Moses taught about those things. So, so if we're going to teach Gentiles to, uh, to, you know, thou shalt not commit adultery... Shouldn't you also teach them to be circumcised as a sign of the covenant? I mean, and so there's some logic behind what they're thinking. Um, this is the way people have always entered into the covenant. Why would we change that now? So that's an important question. And that's a question that the church has to grapple with. And so what ends up happening is Paul gets back from his first missionary journey. He goes to the church at Antioch. He starts telling them all the stuff that took place. And some people hear it and they think, that's cool, but are you not teaching circumcision at all? Like, the, you were just having people who were part of the covenant family, but they have not adopted the sign of the covenant? That doesn't seem right. So they start saying, you should teach circumcision while you're out doing that. And Paul's saying, look, the Spirit of God's working through us without circumcision, so I don't think I have to do that. And they start going back and forth about that to such an extent that they decide, let's go to Jerusalem. Let's go to where the other apostles are, the people who were there with Jesus, where the elders, you know, like, like, a, like James, the brother of the Lord, he's one of the elders there. Let's go talk to them and let's hash this out because this is a big question. And if we're going to open the door to Gentiles, we need some answers to it. And so that's what they decide to do. They journey to Jerusalem. They gather together with the church there and uh, they start to discuss the matter. And really the argument comes down to three things. Three appeals are made. The first is by Peter. Uh, let's read it. Acts chapter 15, verses 7 through 11. This is Peter's argument for why he does not think Gentiles have to be circumcised. He says, After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, we know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. So he starts off, you know what he's talking about here? He's talking about Cornelius. 
He says, we, we all remember when that happened. God made a choice that from me, uh, I was going to teach the gospel to the, the Gentiles, to a man named Cornelius. By the way, remember what it took for Peter to do that. It took three divine visions. These other people haven't had these visions. You know, they, they didn't see what Peter saw. And so they're going to have to be convinced of this. And so Peter starts off by reminding them of that. Verse 8, he says, In God, who knows the heart, he testified to them giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. He's like, when I was talking to him, Cornelius received the Holy Spirit of God, just as we did. That kind of settled the matter that God, and he, they weren't circumcised before that. Like, he just gave it to them and showed that God is willing to accept these people. And so, uh, verse 9, he made no distinction between them and us, cleansing their hearts by faith. It wasn't by circumcision that he cleansed their hearts. It was by faith. And God made no distinction between Gentiles and Jews. It was remarkable. So verse 10, Now therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way that they also are. So he's saying, so what you're wanting to do, like God has already kind of showed us this. He made no distinction between Jew and Gentile. He gave them the Holy Spirit just as he did us. He accepted them just as he did us. And now you're wanting to bind the law of Moses on them. But question, have you kept the law of Moses? No. They're not going to be able to either. Why would we take something that we have failed to live up to and now say, all right, you have to have another failure you carry around with you. You know, you have to fail at the law of Moses too. When we should just see what God had done and recognize it's not circumcision or the law of Moses that makes us right before God. It's the grace and, of our Lord and Savior. That, that, that's what makes us right. That's what God has done. We should probably follow suit. So that's appeal number one, looking back at what happened with Cornelius and saying, that's what God did. Maybe we should do it also. Appeal number two comes from, uh, from Paul and Barnabas. Remember, they're the ones who went out on the missionary journey. They just got back. They went, uh, you know, Acts chapter 13 and 14, to all these different cities teaching the gospel to Gentiles. So they're kind of the authorities on the subject, along with Peter. It's like, if you're going to listen to someone about evangelizing Gentiles, talk to the people who evangelize Gentiles. That's a good place to start. Uh, and so Paul, in verse 12, along with Barnabas, um, it says, And the people kept silent, and they were all listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Why is it important that they relate the signs and wonders? Well, two things. Uh, one of them is the fact that if they're doing signs and wonders among the Gentiles, probably means God's okay with them. Like, they probably couldn't do the signs and wonders if God had a big problem with what they were doing. He might not give them the ability to do it. And so the fact that they're doing signs and wonders is a demonstration that they are working in conjunction with God and the Holy Spirit, and that God is approving of what they're doing. But secondly, do you remember how Acts 2, the sermon that Peter preaches, begins? This lengthy quotation from Joel 2, where God says, I will pour forth my spirit on all flesh and your young men will dream dreams and your old men will see visions and your young women like and it goes through this list of how the people who will have the visions and the dreams and all of that and then it says and you will see signs in the heavens above and wonders on the earth beneath you're going to see signs and wonders as a a part of this spiritual outpouring of the spirit of god 
Paul's saying the signs and wonders didn't stay in Jerusalem. They accompanied us even on this Gentile mission. So when God says, I will pour forth my spirit on all flesh, that's talking about Gentiles too. And the signs and the wonders are, are evidence of that. And so Paul uses his experience along with this reference to signs and wonders from Joel 2 to demonstrate that God approves of what they are doing. Finally, you get the third appeal, which is James, the Lord's brother. And this is going to be in verses 13 through 21. It says, after they stopped speaking, James answered, saying, brethren, listen to me. Uh, Simon has related how God first concerned himself with taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. That's what he's talking about Peter. Uh, and he's saying, basically, Peter's already showed that God was willing to work with uh, Gentiles and to include them among the people called by his name. Then uh, he says in verse 15, with this, the words of the prophets agree. So here's what they've heard so far. The experiences of Peter, and those are really, really important. I think we should listen to the experiences of people who are actually doing the work. But then James says, and what Peter said, it's not like that's just completely contrary to Moses or the, the prophets of Israel. As a matter of fact, the prophets of Israel and our scriptures, they agree with what Peter said. And he's about to quote from the scriptures to show perhaps we can read this in a, in a different way than you have been, and you'll see something else there. So he starts reading the scriptures. He reads the end of the book of Amos, verse 16. This is where he starts quoting from Amos. After these things, I will return, and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. So, uh, you know, Amos is, is uh, picturing the destruction of the, the Jerusalem and the temple that's going to happen in the future. Well, then that happens, and there's this promise that God will rebuild the temple. And when he does that, all of the nations and all of the Gentiles will be able to see what God has done and all the Gentiles who were called by my name. There's this picture that after the rebuilding of the temple, there will be Gentiles called by the name of God. And so, verse 18, he says, says the Lord who makes these things known from long ago. And so based on the fact that God himself has said there's going to be Gentiles called by his name, verse 19, therefore this is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles. If people are turning to God, let them. It's a good thing. Don't stand in the way. Uh, verse 20, but that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from uh, that which is strangled and from blood. For Moses from ancient generations has in every city those who preach him since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Okay, so uh, he says, let's write him a letter. Let's let them know that we think they are A-OK -okay with God. We'll make a couple of, uh, of requirements part of this letter, which we'll talk about some of those tonight in the lesson because I don't have a lot of time to get into them right now. But, uh, but he says, basically, we'll write him a letter. And after that, look at notice verse 20. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, Judas called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. So here's what they do. The church says, okay, this seems like it is paying adequate attention to the movement of the Spirit of God. 
This is uh, listening to the experiences of apostles and prophets, and it's in accordance with the scriptures. It's different than what we all saw before, but it seems like God is doing something different through the Messiah, through Jesus, and we don't want to be found standing in the way of it. So they decide to write a letter, and what you come to find out is they reach agreement. That's a wonderful thing. That doesn't happen too often. Uh, to me, that's an awesome example of the church who has a disagreement on, an op- on a topic coming together, being open listeners, being sincere in their seeking, caring about truth, also prioritizing unity, and reaching an agreement with one another. Then they write a letter. We'll talk again we'll, a little bit more about the letter tonight. Uh, but the letter, basically, it lets the Gentiles know, don't worry you are accepted as our brothers and sisters. We're not going to say that you are unworthy. We're not going to exclude you. We're not going to bind circumcision on you. You are right with God. And because of that, when the letter is read, there is tremendous encouragement. I want to read verses 30 through 33. It says, So when they were sent away, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had it read, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Judas and Silas, uh, also being prophets themselves, they encouraged and strengthened the brethren with a lengthy message. And they had spent, uh, and after they had spent time there, they were sent away from the brethren in peace to those who had sent them out. So here's what happened. The church also said, let's take some trustworthy people who the church loves and we'll send them with the letter. The letter is read to the church. People are encouraged, they rejoice, and then a lengthy message is presented. Nothing wrong with a lengthy message, by the way. Uh, <laughs> this one's coming to a close, don't worry. But, uh, but a lengthy message is presented, and the brethren are encouraged because of it. That's a long message, strengthening people, letting them know that you are right with God. And it was an encouraging, a wonderful message to the church there. And so it actually ends with a, a, a happy ending, a happy conclusion uh, before, uh, before the next set of stories uh, begin. But there are some things I think we can learn from this about facing disputes faithfully. Number one, the church in Antioch is where this whole thing started. And they went down and they got some uh, advice and help and encouragement and direction from the church in Jerusalem. Sometimes it's valuable to be willing to listen to outside wisdom and counsel. Um, Sometimes it's important to remember that not all wisdom is found within yourself. But when you find yourself and some other people uh, having having conflict, sometimes going to an outside resource can be a very helpful way to navigate a way forward towards unity. Um, They listened to the experiences of others. Remember some of the arguments. It was Peter and Paul, and they talked about what they had done. These were people who were the authorities on the subject. They were the ones who had actually evangelized Gentiles. So it was important to give an ear to them and to actually listen to the experiences other people had uh, had while they were going out and doing this, uh, this work. Yet they also listened to Scripture. They didn't say, all right, experience trumps Scripture. But they also didn't say, experience doesn't matter at all because of Scripture. They were willing to listen to both and receive wisdom from their experiences and truth from Scripture. They were able to see the Holy Spirit at work through them both. And there was a a, a consensus that was able to be reached based on these. But consensus can only be reached. Uh, People will only be willing to agree if they listen honestly and with integrity. What I mean is you could have just said, oh, I think Peter's lying, and uh, that's not what Amos is about. I'm going to stick with Moses. Like, you could just disregard 
the evidence is presented, and that often happens. But if the goal is actually truth, unity, and the expansion of God's kingdom, then you have to come together with open and honest hearts. You have to be able to listen and take advice and teaching from other people uh, as you present your own to try to find a united way forward. They encouraged the church uh, with faithful, trusted leaders. Remember, when they sent the letter, they also chose some people who it says had a really good reputation of the church there. Uh, Sometimes having a trusted source uh, is a really helpful way forward with, with unity. Uh, going to people who you know legitimately have the, the be your best interest at heart and the will of God is their goal. They worked with the Holy Spirit. Um, there's a really uh, interesting phrase in the letter that they write in verse 28. It says, It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials. Um, the scripture, but also what the Holy Spirit had done through the work of Peter and Paul and, and Silas uh, and, and Barnabas, I mean, that was all an essential part of this as well. They didn't find themselves fighting against the Spirit of God. And, as I mentioned, they prioritized truth, unity, and expansion. Uh, Reaching outward was one of the goals here. Unity with the church on the inside was one of the goals. And also, truth was the goal. And they didn't sacrifice one for the other. They found a way to make them work together as they continued in the mission of God. So here's the challenge as we bring our lesson to a close. Um, Acts 15 is not a unique thing. What I mean is there's always going to be disagreements among brethren. That'll happen. That's going to pop up. Uh, you probably have some right now. Um, but three things I want you to keep as your goal when you consider how to overcome some of these uh, obstacles and some of these challenges and disagreements. Always strive for truth, always strive for unity, and always strive for the expansion of the kingdom of God. Um, if you always stick to what you consider to be truth and you disregard unity, then you're not actually even sticking the truth anymore because part of the truth of God is being united with one another. And if you prioritize unity above everything else so that the word of God and the truth of God doesn't matter anymore, then you might have unity, but it's not unity based on Jesus. Finding ways for these to work together to lovingly expand the kingdom of God is our mission as Christians. And it's something that uh, we need to always keep in our minds as we strive to be faithful. If there's anyone here this morning who would like the prayers of the church or would like to become a Christian this morning, we pray that you would let that be known. You can talk to our elders in the back of uh, the library through those doors, or you can come and sit on the front row. But if you have a need, we pray that you let it be known while we stand and as we sing.